To say one waits a lifetime for his soulmate to come around is a paradox. People get sick of waiting around, but the art of commitment is a saw that eventually cuts. It was 1983, and 18 months passed since the mysterious world of Buster Lee began. New characters have come on the scene. Things have changed for the better. Overwhelmed by success, Neely Cairo hired 20-year-old Mayella Williams as a personal assistant. Williams is psychic. She can remote view, but she has a long way to go. New, too, is wannabe celebrity and know-it-all 13-year-old Venture Falls. Joan Reynolds' niece ventured dreams of a career as a model, actress, and singer. Last but not least is a part-time surfer, child of privilege, and bon vivant, Mutt Keep News. He's driven, ambitious, and lacks an empathy chip. But Mutt Keep News is so movie star handsome, so dope, he's stopped every day by strangers who want his John Henry. Set your calendar to 1983, and welcome to part two of season one of the mysterious world of Buster Lee. It was 10 a.m. Wearing a brown Harrington coat, navy wool scarf, jeans, and loafers, Buster Lee lumbered into Neely Cairo's office. Standing at her desk, wearing a pink Angora sweater, slacks, a dab of lipstick, and soft eyeshadow, was 20-year-old upstart Myella Williams. Slumped in a wing chair, wearing a freshly pressed khaki jacket and pants, was dapper logistics expert and eye pleaser, brainy Lars LaGuardia. Looking at the traffic outside of Neely's office was former Hollywood glamour puss, crossword dab hand, and Buster Lee's landlady, 60-something, Joan Reynolds. Not invited, entitled neighbor 19-year-old Mutt Keep News from the worldwide publishing dynasty and who rivaled River Phoenix in the dreamy department, stuck his head around the door. I hope you don't mind, said the high-beamed Buck. No, come in, Mutt, said Buster Lee. Lars, suspicious of Mutt's intentions, rolled his eyes. Before Neely was a folder marked Pete DuPont, Hawaii. Only Neely and Buster Lee knew Pete DuPont. They had known him for years. What I'm about to tell you must never leave this office. The security of the Western world is at stake. Standing up to shut the door and unplugging the phone from the wall, Neely opened the folder. What she said can never be repeated. Tell no one, not even your best friends or parents. 30 minutes after the briefing ended, Buster Lee, Myella Williams, Keep News, and Beck, the Blue Healer, hopped onto their vintage Italian scooters, one with a custom-made sidecar for Beck, and zipped like hungry panthers to Butler Seaplane Base, home of the restored 1939 Sea Otter that would take the investigators on a journey across the United States and the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii and the mysterious Pete DuPont. The case would be an opportunity for Buster Lee to test out his new tape recorder. 
He wanted to interview witnesses and the accused, just like they did in Quantico. Mutt was along for the flight to Hawaii. He wanted to surf. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee. Presented by Adam Ive. Growing up on the same commune in Oregon, Buster Lee and Pete DuPont were childhood friends. But associates is a more accurate word. Among the 11 children living in the commune, Pete was the only other boy. As a child, Pete was an odd fellow, that's for sure. For starters, he never looked anyone in the eyes. What's that about? Smart as a whip, Pete had ice for blood. He showed little emotion and could not read social cues. No matter how loudly and softly you spoke, no matter how histrionic or subtle your gesture, it was all gobbledygook to Pete. But he did have goals. In a noble attempt to save society from itself, Pete imagined a future where computers could check everything you said or did to guard against too much insight. Like love, insight came with many different sides. Some deadly. Nevertheless, when Pete was 13, with no formal knowledge of computing, he created and licensed a computer code called RIPIT to the US government. Critics of RIPIT said, why would you make a computer that could think faster and know more than a person? What's the point? It's like, why would you want a car that could drive itself? But one department of the government saw the point. The grand poobah of departments. The toppermost of the poppermost. IRS, otherwise known as the Internal Revenue Service. The tax man. IRS used RIPIT to spy on its employees to see if they were paying their fair share of tax and playing by the rules. So successful was Rippet, by the time he was 18, Pete was a multi-millionaire. But there was a dark side to this. In the wake of Pete's success, dozens of ex-IRS employees threatened his safety. Fearing he was bugged, Pete did not use the phone. For reasons you will soon learn, at the beginning of November, Pete called Neely Cairo, yes, he used a payphone, at International Investigators. Pete DuPont was damaged. When he was five, he threw a stick in the Pacific Ocean and his dog, Bunko was swept away. At 10, Pete's sister, Africa DuPont, was abducted and never seen again. Hawaii. The 1983 rental car parked on the suburban street. When the door opened, 
Beck sprinted towards Sugarfoot, the 11-year-old creamy-colored lab who sat on the lawn of Pete Dupont's modest home. Opening the front door and sauntering down the walk, Pete Dupont was six feet four inches tall. His clothes draped his frame like tinsel on a Christmas tree. A scarecrow from Kansas weighed more. Pete shook Buster Lee's hand and said, I'm glad you came out. Wearing corduroy shorts and gravity shoes, a puka bead necklace, and an I Love New York t-shirt, Buster Lee said, Pete, this is Lars LaGuardia, Mutt Keep News, and Myella Williams. Pete shook their hands. Then, Beck chased Sugarfoot through the port cochere on Pete's house into the backyard. Without reason, Beck stopped. As dogs can, Beck knew something terrible was ahead. He knew Sugarfoot, Pete's lovely, friendly, cream-colored lab, would pass away in three months. Sugarfoot would be gone soon enough. Leaning on the counter in Pete's kitchen, Buster Lee said, You didn't tell anyone what's wrong, but now that I'm here, what's wrong? Pete said, No one must know this beside your team. Looking at Pete's empty expression, Buster Lee said, Right on. Well, how should I begin? Buster Lee said, You should start at the beginning. The beginning is the most important part of a play. Well said Pete unemotionally. Someone is trying to kill me, and it's up to you to find out how it ends. In the garage, Pete told Buster Lee, Lars, and Myella about the shootings. Like most dog owners, in the morning, he took Sugarfoot for a walk. That's when the nightmare started. There were no letters, no threatening calls, but someone was trying to kill him. The first attempt was an intentional miss, a warning shot to spook Pete. A few days later, riding his bike, he didn't see them, but they saw him. This time, it was closer. Removing his hat, Pete found a small bullet hole in it. Buster Lee, Lars, and Myella accompanied Pete to pick up groceries in town. When they turned on the main road, an unmarked gray truck appeared. Looking at the passing scenery, Myella asked Pete why he had not gone to the police. Pete said, A year ago, I came home and found a kid named Denny Mayo ransacking my place. Because of my height and inability to control my anger, I overpowered Danny Mayo and called the police. At the trial, the judge sentenced Danny Mayo to six months. Since then, Danny Mayo has not a kind word to say about me. He told the other inmates, When I get out of here, I'll kick the stuffing out of that do-gooder Pete DuPont. He won't know what hit him. During his incarceration, Pete made inquiries about Danny Mayo and learned the boy was an orphan. After telling Mayella this incredible story, Pete looked at her and said, if I go to the police and tell them someone is shooting at me, they'll think it's Denny Mayo. 
He's young and dumb, but he doesn't deserve to end up in the clink again. Where will that get anyone? When Buster Lee pulled his rental car into the parking lot of Save Now Grocery, the gray truck reappeared, then sped away. Why would anyone live on the rainy side of an island, thought Lars at the end of his run. On the front of Pete Dupont's house, Lars saw a girl leaning on the porch. Dressed in a gingham skirt with feathered hair, the girl was 5'10 and as sweet as a pot of honey fresh from the hive. Given her height, Lars thought that she was a model. Smiling, he said, I'm Lars LaGuardia, a friend of Pete Dupont. I'm staying at his house. Who are you? Looking Lars in the eye and raising her arms like a faith healer, the girl said, My name is Chlorless Lemon. I'm Pete Dupont's half-sister. Seven years after Pete was born, his parents divorced. His mama, Lilla, remarried an attractive 60-year-old physicist named Dr. Nova Lemon. It's rumored Dr. Lemon was working on a space-time algorithm. Anyhow, a week after marriage, Lilla was bursting with life and nine months later, a beautiful baby named Corliss Lemon was born. Strangely, a day after her birth, her daddy, Dr. Nova Lemon, went to the corner store to fetch some milk and was never seen again. A year later, Mama Lemon began having fits and was summoned by the creator soon after. Although she kept up a sunny exterior, inside, Corliss Lemon sobbed like Pagliocho. Like her half-brother Pete, Corliss Lemon had an interest in math and computers. By the time she was eight, Corliss made three programs. The first was a time manager that told the user what the time was in Paris, and Paris only. The second program stopped the user from opening his computer. The third app told the user what kind of man to marry, based on what TV shows she watched. Of course, none sold. When Mama passed, Pete invited me to Hawaii. He got me a job and I live on one of his properties. Clenching her hands, her eyes wet, Corliss blurted out, When I was 14, I became numb. I had no feelings. I knew the details of life, but it had no effect on me. But to fit in, to appear normal, I pretended I had feelings. That's how I knew Pete was hiding something. He's told you, no, someone is trying to kill him. I knew something was wrong a month ago. Do you think it's that boy, Denny Mayo? He's an eye pleaser, but a real JD. They say he was born in jail. Of course, there's always Pete's dishy distant cousin, thrice removed, Sonny Del Monte. And don't forget that nosy widow next door, Birdie Taylor. All year, her home is done up for Halloween. It's all jack-o'-lanterns, witches, cats, and cauldrons. Anyway, Birdie thinks the shooter is Martin Honey Goldberg. He's a hateful little man, a real space cadet if you ask me. He worked at IRS, but Pete's software laid bare that Honey Goldberg was a tax evader. You should speak to him. Honey Goldberg works at Karma Organic Foods Warehouse. 
They sell milk made of crushed almonds there. Who would drink that? Taking a breath, Corliss reached her fingers as though to rest them on Lara's hand, but paused. She looked across the room. I can't tell you what a relief it is to have you here, Lars. Pete's so stubborn, he won't even tell the police. Standing to distance himself from the high-octane Corliss, Lars said, Look, Corliss, Pete's a strange but wonderful guy. Applying some lip gloss, Corliss said, I like you, Lars. Let's go for a walk and you can tell me about yourself, and I can tell you about the people who live around here. Heading out in the drizzle, Corliss forgot to tell Lars a crucial thing about Denny Mayo. As a condition of his parole, the judge ordered Denny Mayo live next door to Pete, at Bertie Taylor's place. Like much legal policy, it is based on wishful thinking, with little evidence. On their way to see former IRS employee Martin Honey Goldberg at Karma Organic Warehouse, Buster Lee, Mayella, and Beck drove by Birdie Taylor's place. Corliss wasn't kidding. On the front steps were five carved jack-o'-lanterns ready for Halloween. Holy bull hockey, said Mayella under her breath. If you've met as many suspicious people as Buster Lee, you have a sense when you're being followed. When Buster Lee, Mayella, and Beck drove into the parking lot of Karma Organic Warehouse, the unmarked gray van appeared again. Because it wasn't going fast, Buster got a better look at the van's driver and passengers. At the rear of the van was a lady of retirement age. Sometimes a girl of marrying age appeared. Who were these women and what did they want? When you enter Karma Organic Warehouse, there's a poster of Che Guevara beside the punch-in clock. Lumbering down the aisles, crammed with canned tomatoes, lentils, and bags of brown rice, in the bulk nuts aisle, a man around 40 appeared. Can I help you? He said. Yes, said Buster Lee. We're looking for Martin Honey Goldberg. The man, with a passive gaze, wore a turtleneck the hue of an oyster, a dark rowing blazer with white piping, as well as a button featuring a penny farthing, a pair of khaki trousers, deck shoes, and appearing as different from an ex-IRS employee as you could imagine, said, I'm Martin Honey Goldberg. Pleased to meet you. I'm Buster Lee. This is Myella Williams. She's a remote seer. We're here investigating the threats made against Pete DuPont, I understand Pete DuPont is your bet noir. Martin Goldberg tapped his upper lip with his index finger. Ah, so you're Buster Lee. I've read about you in the papers. All right. Well, where do I start? Three years ago, the phone rang. It was my boss with three police. I felt my blood pressure rise in fear. I fell off the chair. Thanks to Pete DuPont's spyware, I lost everything. My pension, my life fell apart. I was drinking a lot then and said a lot of bad things about Pete DuPont, but had Pete's computer program not sniffed out my accounting irregularities, no one would have been the wiser. 
Are you saying tax evasion is ubiquitous at IRS? Said Buster Lee. Honey Goldberg smiled and looked at a box of semolina. Had I stayed longer at my job, I would have drunk, I would have bought a Kalashnikov, I would have gone postal, and one day, hundreds would have perished. But in smoking me out, Pete DuPont saved my life and, in doing so, that of others. I'm much happier now working with organic food rather than destroying the lives of hardworking people. I want to move to England. Honey Goldberg paused, looked away for a moment, and in a denying voice with an affirming tone said, Tax is theft, you know. What did you say? said Buster Lee. Tax is theft. That's what I thought you said. Buster Lee shook Honey Goldberg's hand. On the way out, Martin Honey Goldberg said, Be seeing you. Looking at Buster Lee, Mayella said, He isn't going to hurt Pete. Waimea Bay is ordinary. Built 70 years ago, there was no official plan and no one cared. A corner store here, a gas station there, an Episcopal church at the end of the road. Big frickin' deal. In 1960, the easy-come, easy-go attitude changed when a developer from Kazakhstan built a strip mall called Waimea Center. A chimera too repulsive for even Mary Shelley's taste, Waimea Center was really a strip mall, a mishmash of cement and greed. The strip, as locals called it, had a Lucky's Liquor, two ammo stores, and a discount retailer called Whims. Pete DuPont's cousin, three times removed, Sunny Del Monte, worked at Whims. When you live around mystery, you develop an instinct for it. On his way to meet Pete's young cousin, Sunny Del Monte, Buster Lee sensed something was wrong. Nervous, he ducked down an alley with Beck. Then boom. Buster Lee didn't feel the silk cord. He only felt something tighten around his throat. But the feeling didn't last long, because everything went black. When he woke up, his head throbbed. The room was dim. There was no window. Beck licked his face. Then he saw it, and for a second, his breath stopped. Buster Lee didn't know how long the 17-foot cobra had been there. He only knew he wanted out. The cobra headed for them. They scrambled up the stairs and watched as the deadly beast snapped at their ankles. At the top, Buster Lee tried to break down the door. Without warning, the door opened and a shirtless young buck popped his head in and tossed a piece of chocolate at the bloodthirsty legless reptile. Smelling the cocoa, the baleful brute turned and trailed it down the stairs. It's a known fact, said the boy. Cobras will always choose chocolate over live prey. Stepping into whims and looking around, Buster Lee said, I'm Buster Lee. I'm looking for Sonny Del Monte. Smiling with all the authenticity of a $2 bill, the lad put his hand forward and looking at Buster Lee from head to toe and back said, my fine friend, you've come to the right place. I am Sonny Del Monte, at your service. Born to an outcast in Memphis, Sonny Del Monte had the chiseled good looks of an actor and the charm of a snake. 
fearing rejection, instead of entering the arts, Sonny Del Monte became a grifter. He never met a person he couldn't exploit. Sonny was not an entirely bad tomato, but growing up, he was taught to believe everything was relative. The message was simple and easy to repeat. His parents, teachers, TV shows, even his favorite bands hammered one message home. It's all relative, there's no right or wrong, no better or worse. The assertions went unchallenged. Years later, when he was 18, and it was confirmed he had a wealthy cousin in Hawaii called Pete Dupont, Sonny flew over. With his good looks and easygoing charms, Sonny introduced himself to Honolulu's coterie of movers and shakers. Step by step, inch by inch, he squirmed his way closer to multi-millionaire Pete Dupont. By the time he hitchhiked to Waimea Bay, the odds of bamboozling Pete Dupont were looking mighty sweet indeed. And take note, it was no secret locals thought Pete Dupont was part robot. A rumor Sonny found interesting. Extremely interesting. During his conversation with Sonny, fresh evidence emerged. If he was to be believed, before Sonny was ready to entrap Pete Dupont in his web of deceit and lies, an intervention occurred. Reliving the story, Sonny said, I came to Waimea Bay with one plan, to exploit Pete Dupont. Then I met Newt Evans. Only 22, Newt Evans was an ordained deacon, Sonny said. I never learned to surf too good, but as a result of talking to Newt, I became a believer. Unless this was a well-crafted act, Buster Lee believed Sonny. Then, looking Buster Lee's ankle, Beck raised his front leg and pointed to the unmarked gray van. It was back. The interior of Bertie Taylor's home looked like a witch's hut, but that made sense, as she was always hosting seances. Want to speak to Marilyn Monroe, John Kennedy, Elvis, or your dead uncle? Bertie Taylor was your go-to medium in Waimea. Though it was two weeks past Halloween, the walls of Bertie's homes were plastered with silhouettes of cats, goblins, and pumpkins. She wrapped garlands of black and orange plastic flowers around the handrails of her staircase. Old Bertie was a strange woman, all right. Mighty strange. But I'm getting ahead of things. After a week's investigation, after cobra attacks, taped interviews, meetings, and endless surveillance, Buster Lee had a theory. To clear the air, he invited all the suspects. Corliss Lemon, Sonny Del Monte, Denny Mayo, and Martin Honey Goldberg to Bertie Taylor's house. Lars and Maella were there too. Once assembled in Bertie Taylor's living room, better decorated for a Halloween party, Buster Lee brought Pete Dupont in. Standing in Bertie's living room, Pete said, I wish you would tell me what this is about, Buster Lee. Smiling, the amateur sleuth turned to Lars Maella and said, Can you bring them in now? Wearing a tight shirt that emphasized her bosom, carrying a sparkly purse, her face smeared with lipstick and mascara, came Corliss Lemon. 
From the hollowness of her eyes, you could tell she hadn't slept. Like a she-beast, Corliss whined. I don't know why I was called in for this morbid nonsense. It's insane, I tell you. I'm just a teenager, right? Why would I want to hurt anyone, let alone my dear half-brother? Since my daddy disappeared and my mama passed on, he's been as sweet as a pot of honey to me. Corliss was followed by Martin Honey Goldberg, who was followed by Sonny Del Monte and his chum, Newt Evans. Finally, wearing a moth-eaten shirt, ill-fitting gray and white striped pajama bottoms, and blue blockers too big for his head, came Denny Mayo. As emotionally unstable as ever, who knew what he would do? Denny wore an adolescent aftershave that combined the scent of vanilla, cocoa, cotton candy, dill, and cinnamon. The aroma was both hedonistic and excessive. Before starting the proceedings, Beck the Super Pooch and Sugarfoot nestled themselves between two large pumpkins in the front hall. As though they were in a movie or TV show, Buster Lee and Pete stood at a lectern near the fireplace. Clearing his throat, Buster Lee said, I think you know why we're here. Someone wants to murder Pete DuPont. Careful not to knock over a candle, Buster walked over to Denny Mayo and smiling said, You're a suspect, Denny, because I don't have you figured out yet. If I were you, I wouldn't leave town. Approaching Martin Honey Goldberg, Buster Lee said, Any man who calls tax theft is a libertarian and not entertaining thoughts of murder. Turning to Sonny, Pete's handsome second cousin twice removed, Buster said, Sonny came here to manipulate Pete, but after talking to Newt the Deacon, experienced a change of heart. That leaves us with one person. Hearing a noise outside, Buster Lee said, Excuse me a minute. He looked out the front window and saw the gray truck again. Its engine started, the lights turned on, and the truck left. Then Buster Lee looked at Corliss Lemon and said, That leaves us with one suspect, a female who never wanted a real job. Corliss grabbed her purse and said, Shut up, shut up, I can't listen to this, you don't know what you're saying. Returning to the lectern, Buster Lee said, Like her stepbrother Pete, Corliss wanted to code but she lacked that snap of brilliance that you don't know you want it until you see it that venture capitalists love. Reaching in her purse, Corliss withdrew a jewel-encrusted dagger. Frothing like a beast, Corliss snapped. I'm no different than Pete. Where's my piece of the American dream? I'll kill you because you lied, Pete. You all lie. I hate the lying. I hate the spying. With this priceless jewel-encrusted dagger, I'll stab you all. I'll stab you one and all. Seeing the gleam of her knife, everyone scrambled every which way. Corliss' eyes bulged wildly and saliva slobbered from her mouth. Before she could stab anyone, Corliss Lemon was seized by an unbearable throbbing in her foot. Looking down, pints of the crimson stuff, the juice of life, was violently spewing on the carpet. Without warning, Corliss crumpled like a sock monkey. Looking around, Buster Lee saw Beck, his protective blue healer. With a precision a plastic surgeon would admire, the usually friendly pooch nipped his razor-like incisors and canines deep into the baby-soft flesh of Corliss Lemon's delicate left ankle. She let out a yelp, then said, Ouch! Something's biting me! 
An hour later, Corliss was taken downtown and charged with destructive mischief. Bertie Taylor acted as Corliss Lemon's guardian, a decision she would come to regret as the years went by. Everyone deserves a second chance. With time, Pete DuPont forgave Denny Mayo and the two became chums. With the encouragement of Deacon Newt, Sonny left his life of exploitation and became a minister. Together, Sonny and Newt became known as the surfing priests of Waimea. The local TV channel even did a story on them. No longer in Hawaii, Martin Honey Goldberg moved to England where he met and married a woman named Daisy Wood. At her trial, the judge sent Corliss Lemon to a home for young incorrigible females in the dreary state of Utah. With no release date, Corliss continues to languish there today. That takes us next to Bertie Taylor. If you go by Bertie's place, she continues to host seances, and it's still Halloween all year. A listener asked me about Pete's beautiful cream-colored retriever, Sugarfoot. After a long and wonderful life, he passed away in February. So long, Sugarfoot. Denouement. Parked on the beach with the sliding door open was the late model gray van Buster Lee had seen so much of. Wearing a flattering black one piece and reading a magazine called The Futurist was Joan Reynolds. Beside her, lounging in a folding chair and wearing an oversized sun hat was Venture Falls. Looking up from the magazine, Joan said, the author says in the future we won't have travel agents public telephones, and will listen to actors read books to us. That sounds like crazy talk to me, said Venture. Why would you want to listen to some actor read you a book? Books are meant to be read, right? It's like cheating. Fifty feet from the van, bobbing like corks in the ocean, were Buster Lee, Lars, Maella, and the handsome Mutt Keep News. Across from them, Standing on all fours on a miniature surfboard was the super pooch, Beck. Somehow, the darn dog learned to surf. Caught on Joan's Super 8 camera, Beck zipped past Buster Lee, as though he'd grown up in Waikiki or Big Sur. You've been listening to The Mysterious World of Buster Lee. Presented by Adam Ive. Mystery World theme by Oliver Wickham. Follow us on Instagram. Go ampersand pod underscore planet. For show notes and merch, go to podplanet.org. Special thanks to Tattoo Sound and Music. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee is written and produced by podplanet.org. Mm-hmm.